Well, this is Current Yield, a Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Thank you for joining us. I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, uh, Eric Whitehead, Control Panel, uh, the great editor. Ah, oh, wait, I was going to give her a promotion. Deputy editor, not so fast, Lorenz. Uh, Evan Lorenz is with us, and Phil Grant, who runs our almost daily grants. And uh, we are here today to talk about the public debt, which is a huge topic. In fact, to borrow from Donald Trump talking in uh, Davos, Switzerland, he gave a half an hour talk and he was, some said, boastful about uh, America's winning under his administration. And uh, a very funny man from the Daily Telegraph of London was there, uh, Michael Deacon, and he wrote the following about uh, uh, Trump's speech. Uh, he did not quite say, writes the Daily Telegraph, he did not quite say American men were taller and stronger and more manly than ever before, or that American women were hotter than ever before. You wouldn't believe how much hotter they were, over 30% hotter than under the last administration. It was incredible how hot they were <laughs> under. <laughs> he didn't say that, but no one would have batted an eye if he had said it. And that's Donald Trump, who is beside over the most fabulous, tremendous expansion of the public. Many I mean, people I think, are saying. I think yeah. many people are saying that. Uh, so, is, so, so the point before the question for the House is, does this matter? I mean, it's, it's the, the public debt is, what, $23 trillion and change. If you walk between um, West 44th Street, between 6th Avenue and, uh, I guess, 7th Avenue, you or Broadway, I lost track of which. Anyway, West 44th Street, there is a public debt clock, and it ticks away, and I think the number is 23 point something trillion. And, uh, you know, um, it's a lot of money even when you say it fast. So the question is, does it matter? Does it matter for investment? Does it matter for interest rates? And um, Does it uh, matter for growth even? That's another question. Yeah. Um, Van Hoisington, um, which is a famous bond bull and also kind of bearish. Uh, Van Hoisington? Yeah, you said which. He's a, he's a person. He's, he's a, a person yeah. too. They just came out with their fourth quarter letter and they noticed one thing that um, in the last two quarters of 2019, incremental debt in the U.S. only generated, each incremental dollar of debt in the U.S. only generated 40 cents of additional GDP growth. Which was high for the world compared to other countries. It's high for the world, but it's also 25% below where the U.S. was 20 years ago. And while we had a little bit of a sugar rush in 2018 um, as a result of the tax um, uh, change, um, growth fell from 2.9% in the 2018 to 2.1% in the third quarter of 19. So we've already seen a deceleration after you know something that blew up the budget. Right. So, but again, the question is, uh, uh, you know, is more debt more better? Well, no. Say the people at Hoisington. A common sense would indicate that. But common sense would also indicate that if you issue too much debt in relation to the demand for that debt, the price of the debt, the inverse of the yield, price will go down, the yield will go up, right? That's what we kind of think that the too much debt is bad for the price of debt. However, the paradox is, according to some people, and I'll, I'll mention two, is that the, the more debt, the more better, so to speak, for the price of that security. Now, Nariana uh, Kocher uh, Lakota was the head of the Minneapolis Fed, now teaches economics at the University of Rochester, uh, is, was out with a Bloomberg piece a few days ago saying, stop worrying about the public federal debt because uh, the government which uh, issues debt in its own currency can afford any level of debt that is owed to the domestic investor, right? Because they can, the government can tax the investors uh, to pay them their own interest. So that's kind of, that's a neat, so you hear that a lot. We owe it to ourselves was a joke during the Roosevelt administration in the 30s. And uh, the father of modern monetary theory, uh, Mr. Abba Lerner, also in the 30s and 40s, propounded that there is no such thing as sound finance, it's only functional finance, and that the government that borrows in its own currency can keep going and should keep going 
until uh, there is an inflation problem. Oh, inflation problem or a funding problem. It's a little bit ironic that um, we're talking about this right now. Back in mid-September, we actually had a blow up in the repo market, which funds treasuries and overnight. Uh, right. Let's 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 yeah. wait one second for that because I want to mention the Hoisington people with respect to the fundamentals. What what matters for the pricing of this debt? So. Professor now, uh, Coach Lakota says, uh, "Don't worry, because the government can tax tax the uh, holders of the debt to pay the interest." Now, the Hoisin people say that the only fundamental here is not the supply of debt, but rather the, the level of price inflation. So, the more debt is more deflationary. The weight of debt is a dead hand on production. Therefore, paradoxically, but truly, say they, uh, supply and demand really don't matter. What matters is the CPI. If CPI is not going up, the price of debt may go up, but likely uh, won't go down. Evan, talk about the supply. Yeah, so, so here's what I thought was kind of ironic. The blow up in uh, mid-September was for a lot of reasons. No, let's, let's explain what happened. Yeah, so in mid-September, um, repo rates, which is the cost to finance high-class collateral like treasury securities in the overnight market, shot to as high as 10%. And banks that should have been hitting that bid weren't. And um, collateral was going unfinanced. And this led to the Fed intervening in the markets on almost a daily basis since then, expanding, uh, restarting um, a knock-QE of purchasing $60 billion worth of treasury uh, bills every month. So we had a, a giant blow up there as the uh, amount of treasury outstanding did uh, grew at a much faster pace than the market that actually funded it. Now, just a few months later, the yield on the 10-year treasury is 1.72%. CPI is actually increasing. The consumer price index rose 2.3% in December uh, year over year, up from 2.1% in November and 1.9% in December of 2018. So we have rising prices in terms of like what you and I spend every day, but yields continue to go down notwithstanding the fact that we had a near blow up in the um, the most one of the most important financing markets out there. Yes. Um, well, getting back, yes. And getting back to the uh, uh, the asterisk or the codicil in the uh, modern monetary theory, theory uh, Albert Lerner says that, uh, that you can issue indefinitely in your own currency, but you may not issue indefinitely if a substantial portion of your debt is held by overseas creditors. And uh, I think uh, we you know, can all agree with the facts that um, overseas creditors, in fact, own a substantial portion of the American debt. And the sound of the flipping pages you hear, ladies and gentlemen, is the editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer trying to find the document that, that uh, from the Treasury that talks about the net international investment position of the United States. If I recall it, I believe it was negative 11 trillion as of the third quarter last year. Right, I think that's about right. And uh, so that means uh, that they, our overseas friends own much more of us, 11 trillion net, than we own of their assets. And just to put it in perspective, a trillion is a large number and it's hard to like put it in your mind. U.S. GDP is roughly 20 trillion. So this is a little bit over half of GDP. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's um, so, uh, you know, the U.S. issues the world's reserve currency. We know that the, the U.S. is, uh, uh, I can quote the president on this. Um, uh, this is from the Washington Post. So discount that a little bit if you like. But still, this comes from supposedly from a, a tape that was made um, on the quiet at the speech in Mar-a-Lago. And here is the president talking about uh, the defense budget. Quote, in a separate audio clip, this is the Washington Post, Trump is heard boasting about increasing the defense budget by 2.5 trillion. Interior quotes indicating the president himself is now speaking. A massive sum he may have got, oh, this is somebody else talking. A massive sum he may have gotten by adding several years budgets. Uh, so uh, that's, that's somebody else is saying that. To those who criticize his spending and the growing national debt, Trump said, quote, who the hell cares about the budget? We're going to have a country. 
close quote. And following up on that, uh, CNBC interviewed uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, and this is what he told uh, CNBC today. The president has asked us to start working on what we call tax 2.0, and that'll be additional tax cuts. There'll be tax cuts for the middle class, and we'll also be looking at other incentives to stimulate economic growth. Well, I think American men are looking stronger as we speak, and the, uh, the other Oscar's two. is improving. The yeah. other two, yeah. Um, so this, this is, by the way, all this, this happy talk about uh, debt is good and uh, cost is uh, zero, uh, negligible, certainly. Uh, this is coming in the context of some very, very bullish talk. Phil, I think you noticed something on the airwaves or the Bloomberg terminal the other day about uh, uh, no more booms and busts. I think that where that come from. Oh yeah, a, uh, uh, I forget his name, a co-CIO of Bridgewater mentioned that at a Davos interview yesterday. Yes, and um, uh, David Solomon of Goldman Sachs said something to the similar effect today as well. Yeah. The economic cycle has been banished. Right, something else that the, uh, uh, the uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs said is really startling. By the way, by, uh, just to back up a, a set, oh, wait a second. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of our sponsor. Who's that? Uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. And uh, we could not have asked for a better sponsor. I'm gonna tell you a few things you might not know. Evan, we've been publishing what? I think, uh, yeah, more than 36 years. And do you know what the, uh, the finest thing that anyone has ever said to me about Grant's? Well, some years ago, I was uh, talking with one of my Wall Street friends and he said, quote, all the interesting people read Grant's. Ah, so gratifying. I, I'm still trying to live up to the spirit of that accolade. But, you know, but of course, not to all the interesting people subscribe. I understand that a few of our podcast listeners don't. I expect that many of these latent readers would like to subscribe. They are serious investors after all. They love actionable investment ideas. They love penetrating security analysis, original thinking about monetary affairs uh, and interest rates. They like copy-edited professional copy, words placed where they ought to be placed, and they scorn today's Vogue and what uh, Sheryl Sandberg of uh, Facebook approvingly calls the uh, uh, snackable bites of content. Yeah, that's not us. So what do we do? We publish every other Wednesday, 12 pages, about 7,500 words. That's about uh, 30 double space pages. Your idea of a really bad weekend in school uh, maybe that's four or five articles, something to be bought, something to be sold, high insights into monetary policy, currencies, commodities. Uh, it's, it's, and it's, 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 it's I, I, I'm speaking from a point of interest to be sure and pride, but it, it is, uh, it's terrific. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do, you uh, aspiring subscribers. Visit uh, uh, grantspub.com uh, slash uh, pod2020 and you will find a truly extravagantly generous offer. What we are offering is a normal subscription to grants, uh, normal, as if anything connected with a subscription to grants could be just average or normal, but a subscription to grants is yours along with a personally signed copy of my book uh, called The Forgotten Depression. It's a book about the, the depression of 1920-21. It's a grand tale of a business cycle, and uh, that depression exactly 100 years ago happens to be the final such downturn in American history that was not governmentally medicated. It was the last uh, case of uh, uh, spontaneous market and price movement uh, adjusting things and cutting short what had been a very serious downturn. So visit uh, grantspub.com slash pod2020. Subscribe to Grants for like a trifling, I forgot what the posthumously low sum of money. You'll see it there. And uh, I'm going to send you uh, this very fine book. It won the Hayek Prize a couple of years ago, did uh, Forgotten Depression. So the book, the subscription, uh, you already got the podcast. Uh, what else, Eric? Oh, yes. When you subscribe to Grants, you get uh, free roaming rights 
on our 36 plus years of archive material. It's millions of words, millions of well-placed, professionally copy-edited words, and uh, have fun. To back up a second with respect to what I'm gonna tell you about David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, his predecessor was Lloyd Blankfein, who came from a law firm to Goldman way back when. Uh, so uh, he was a doctor of jurisprudence at JD. And now at Goldman Sachs, we have a disc jockey who is a DJ, right? From JD to DJ. That's, that's good. That's progress too, right? Yep, that's right. All right. So here is David Solomon. And Phil has, uh, has observed that apparently there is a woke contest going on among the CEOs of the major Wall Street firms. Because no sooner did Larry Fink say that um, they're going to do no business, no how, with, uh, I'm paraphrasing slightly, with any company that, uh, that turns the lights on or burns fossil fuels, whatever, something like that, right? Coal? Okay, that was that was Larry Fink. Here is um, breaking news from CNBC. Um, quote, this is David Solomon talking now. Starting on July 1st in the U.S. and Europe, we are not going to take a company public unless there is at least one diverse board candidate with a focus on women. So wait a second. Wait a second. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. With a focus on women, is that like the male gaze? I was about to ask, this, is that Harvey Weinstein? Boy, this is a sick thing when this guy can say this and get away with it. Well, you, aren't we supposed to be working on business and not, you know, not focusing on women? Yes, certainly around this office, that is the uh, modus operandi. So we, you know, we, uh, let us get back to the business at hand, gentlemen, and talk about what this pretty impressive buildup of debt means for the price of debt, for, for interest rates, which is our line of work and not small smart talk. Well, this decade's going to put to test a lot of uh, conceptions people have had about debt. For one, according to the uh, Office of Management and Budget, this will be the first year that the trust funds for Social Security and Medicare are actually going to run, an, uh, an, are going to run, not the first time, but they're going to start running net deficits every year starting this year going forward. And this is just because as um, the U.S. population ages and more people retire, there's just going to be more expenses on this pay-go program. Um, so the idea that deficits don't matter is something that Cheney said in, what was it, 2002? Well, yeah, he said, uh, as, as quote, more or less quote, is as, as Reagan showed uh, deficits don't matter. And, and, and in fairness to him, in fairness to uh, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed, certainly in fairness to the people at Hoisington Management who have put up the greatest investment numbers over the course of years, um, it has been correct to believe and to act as if uh, the greater supply of debt, the lower the rate of interest. Under Reagan, the debt, uh, what, debt tripled and interest rates halved. So it's true, right? Yeah. However, is anything ever always true in Perpetuity, markets? Yeah, right. And uh, when I got into the uh, came of uh, financial age in uh, what 1997? Oh, it was earlier. Uh, in the 70s, it was known as even as you know, debt is good is now known. It was known then that that uh, the burden of debt, as uh, as expressed in uh, the gross public debt and the annual deficit data. This was very, very bearish for bond prices. Well, it's people like stories to actually make sense of data. And the thing is, the stories don't always tell you what the underlying truth is or relationship between data. And just one example, after the, um, the crash in 1929, U.S. stocks had dividend yields in excess of treasuries. And people would say, well, of course, you need to be rewarded for the risk in stocks. That relationship flipped in the mid-1950s, and then after that, people rationalized by saying, well, of course, dividend yields are lower because you actually get growth with a stock, whereas with a bond, you only get a fixed set of payments. But those were rationalizations that people used for decades to actually justify certain economic relationships. Peruse any set of newspapers from the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, throughout the 70s and 80s, everything was laser-focused on the budget, movements on the budget, and how the government was going to manage it. Now, literally nobody cares. It's unclear whether the focus in the 70s and 80s was wrong 
or the lack of focus now is wrong and it might start mattering in the future. Well, causation is a very slippery thing to determine yeah. with these, with these international your, uh, markets. Isn't that Richard Russell quote, markets make opinions? Yes, markets make opinions, said the late great Richard Russell. Or Soros' idea of reflexivity too. Yeah, but the question is, do markets make facts? No, no. They don't, but uh, people certainly twist facts to fit the, the narrative. Well, the narrative affects the price, and then the price affects the narrative, and it becomes this. Yes, it does. Until it doesn't. So, so um, this uh, takes us yet again back to the uh, disturbances in the repo market in September, uh, which have continued to this day. And uh, the fruit of those disturbances is a Fed that is nonstop accommodative. I mean, the... Uh, if you look in the balance sheet, which we at Grants uh, certainly assiduously do, you look at the, see the rate of growth in what we call uh, Federal Reserve Bank credit, which is simply the sum of the Fed's earning assets, stock, you know, bills, bonds, notes. And uh, over the past three months, that sum has been rising at the annual rate of uh, uh, now 25%, I think, a little less. You had been 30-odd percent a few weeks ago. But still, you know, 25% annual rate of this. Uh, they're adding to their portfolio holdings uh, $60 billion of bills a month and a nonstop accommodation of this repo market. And uh, the theory we have developed here, or the observation we have made here, is that it would seem as if the supply of debt is greater than the investment demand for debt, underscore investment. Certainly the debt is carried. It's carried by the primary dealer community and the outstandings of that dealer community, what, uh, Evan, 200 and something billion dollars, right? Uh, yeah, over 200 billion now. Yeah, so this debt is held, as it were, in a kind of a suspense account hanging over the market. And uh, that account is, it's kind of a margin account, which is financed directly through Federal Reserve repo support. Yeah, I mean, the other part, uh, James Bianco has actually crunched the numbers on this, but prior to the financial crisis, I believe he said the repo market was roughly equal to like 80% of the treasury market. Now I think it's closer to 20% when the crisis struck in September. So part of that treasury has grown, uh, treasury debt outstanding has grown much, much, much faster than bank footings. The other part of that is post-crisis regulation has actually limited how much banks can lend in any market. We know that this debt is being financed because there's very little yield on an unleveraged basis. And it would be most interesting to see what, what interesting to see what uh, will happen if, as and when, uh, rates decide to go up again. And who knows when that might be. Certainly, I am the world's leading authority in not knowing that topic. I want to quote um, uh, where a quotation is deserved. And, um, and this is, this, I think this is a very good way of thinking about the public debt. This comes from David Stockman, who um, uh, does it, let's say, he doesn't mince words. He, 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 has, he writes something called Contra Corner, and uh, he uh, just lets them have it between the eyes, whoever they are, his, his, his targets. And his targets are often the worthy ones. In this case, they, his target is the Treasury and the administration and its fiscal, uh, uh, what's the word, Evan? Uh, incontinence, I think, might be the word. Uh, so David Stockman, the former director of the Office of Management and Budget under Ronald Reagan, knows the fiscal situation cold. He, I think he's the great authority on uh, the public debt and public spending and related topics. And he reminds us that the, I'm quoting now from one of his writings, that the critical point when it comes to the budget deficit is not just about the size, but also the location in cyclical time and the trends in motion for future years. And he observes that this, these deficits, this deficit is unprecedented on, on each and every count. That's pretty, that's, that's clarifying though. Mm -hmm. So here we are in month, what is it, uh, uh, 126 months or something into this expansion? Um, anyway, it's... Uh, we're in, what is it, 127? We're, we're, we're ending month 127. 127 right now. Anyway, it's longer than it's ever been. Certainly it's a ripe business expansion. And the 
I think the, uh, the deficit since August, this August, this past August, mind you, was itself up. Yeah, since August 1st, we have added uh, almost 1.2 trillion of debt. It went from uh, 22 point something trillion to 23.2. And just from the official uh, budget deficits through December, I believe we're now above a trillion dollar deficit for the first time since 2012. And just again, for the whole sake of irony, the U.S. Treasury is now looking to actually start selling 20 year bonds again for the first time since 1986 because demand for longer dated uh, securities is so great. And they're also talking about doing either 50 year or 100 year bonds on top of that. So deficits are, are expanding. At the same time, it seems like demand, especially for longer data treasuries, which lock you into more losses if interest rates rise, is also expanding. Yes, the demand is, is still strong. How interesting, even as this overhead supply being carried uh, you know, on margin by our primary dealers and others is, is uh, enormous. And I don't know, it's, it's great drama. Ladies and gentlemen, here at Grants, we are kind of uh, connoisseurs of interest rate drama. Very few people see it just that way, but we certainly do. Well, um, what else, fellas? That's is that that's kind of it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's public debt, huh? It's a lot of it. By the way, I think I think we might close with the observation just how tremendous it is. It's never been bigger. Huge. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. This is Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. See you next time on Current Yield.